1952, it's always been said, what evidence do you need for UFO contact? Do they need to land on the White House lawn? It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent ETA and... Agent Anderson, come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. But first, it's time for... Strange Events. Bizarre Facts. The Unbelievable Revealed. This is the Mind Boggle of the Week. Escaped mutant crawfish clones take over the world? While it sounds like a B-sci-fi movie from the 1950s, modern science continues to provide fresh horrors for your podcast entertainment. They may not take over the world just yet, but cloned crayfish conquered a cemetery in Belgium. They appear to have originated in the underground German black market pet market. And I just want to reiterate that although this sounds completely made up, it is not. It gets even weirder because these escaped clones are all female and reproduce asexually. (laughs) They're Raphrodites? (laughs) So stupid, (laughs) but it's true. (laughs) You're turning the frogs gay, man. (laughs) I'll spare you the... (laughs) (laughs) I'll spare you the obvious jokes... These horrific little gals can burrow one meter down to hide from laboratory workers, trying in vain to round them up for science. A single crawfish can populate an entire area with its own genetically identical offspring slash clones. They appear to be spreading to areas surrounding the cemetery. Will humans ever prevail against such horrific monsters? Will human females find out and try to get rid of men by cloning themselves? Has science gone mad? And now it's time for the show. All right. <laughs> I usually try to write those out and just kind of read them, but that one is just that one is just so stupid. <laughs> but I mean it's true. That's like I'm not making that up. Really, I'm not making it up. But it's just like it sounds completely made up. It just makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> as you yeah. were, there was yeah, as soon as you started reading it cuz I I haven't heard this before you started reading it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I I immediately had to kind of hold back a little bit. <laughs> You're like, what? No, that can't be real. <laughs> wait, wait a minute now. <laughs> but it what is. What did you just say? Apparently. <laughs> All right. So anyways, today's episode is the, uh, the 1952 Washington, D.C. UFO incident, sometimes known as the Washington Flap, the Washington National Airport sightings, or the invasion of Washington. Yeah, okay. that first one reminds me of this one time, but I digress. Yeah, we we don't talk about that anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's move on. Anyways. Yeah. So, yeah, dude, this this uh, happened in 1952. It is one of, in my opinion, one of the most sensational stories that you can draw upon. And, and it, it, where it happened, like the corroborating, corroborating, did I pronounce that right? I think so. The stories uh, align very well. You know what I mean? But everybody involved, in my opinion, there there are some differences. But uh, holy crap, this is a good this is a good one. This is a real good one. I mean, this is this is pretty much like the holy grail of UFO sightings. You have multiple independent corroborating witnesses. You have corroborating visual radar sightings. I mean, you don't have photos and videos, but they didn't have that stuff. It wasn't that common back then to have you know 
videos and recordings. But even so, this is pretty much as good as it gets for a UFO report. It, it's it's yeah. pretty pretty mind blowing. And when I when I listen to these or when I read about them, um, I like to put myself in those people. Like imagine yourself, you're a fighter pilot, and you just get scrambled to intercept something, and just mm-hmm. imagine being in the place of what these people say happened. It's it's pretty it's pretty interesting. It's a pretty interesting case. What is going to be going through your mind? And it's not just that also. I mean, taking into account the time period that this happened. This is 19, 1952, okay? The midst of the Cold War, a very heightened level of, of uh, awareness. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, when they see this kind of thing happening over, over Washington, D.C., I mean, there's going to be quite a people, quite a bit of people within the government structure that are going to freak the hell out, and it appears some of them did. You know, and that's, oh, yeah. that's part of I think part of the entertaining part of this story, also. You know, yeah, they were the gov- the entire government, all the way up to the president, were supposedly in a state of panic because you have these UFOs flying over the Capitol, over the White House, and they're playing with us like children. It, we had yeah. we, we couldn't do. <laughs> anything to them. We couldn't intercept them. We could barely get a radar lock on them. We couldn't catch them. And, you know, they, they would speed up. Uh, as soon as we got a radar lock, they would, you know, speed out of the area. It, but we'll, we'll get all to all the details in a moment. Uh, yeah, moment yeah, momentarily. We'll, yeah. We'll get to it. But, but, but at no point were any of the fighter jets that were scrambled able to get any kind of strategic advantage. Right. That's for damn sure. You know, even even them just attempting the maneuver didn't even work, let alone getting in position. You know what I mean? The fighters that were scrambled were F9, what are they, F-94s? It's further down yeah. in my notes. F-94 Starfires, I believe, and their top yes. speed was something, somewhere in the order of like 650 miles an hour. At the time, that was state-of-the-art, and that was the fastest production fighter jet at the time. They had some experimental stuff that was faster, but nothing that was in production. So if this is the state of the art aircraft and it's pretty much a sitting duck against whatever these UFOs were, oh, it's sure. It's hard to believe that a foreign power was that far ahead of us technologically. Uh, who who knows what the hell the truth of any of these situations that we investigate is, you know? But I, I guess you know, I guess we should start with like the kind of the base outline of, of what happened. Let's start at the be- before the uh, event. That, so the okay. there was actually in 1952, there was a nationwide, actually probably a global um, flap or wave of UFOs that it's. I think it's really important to 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 address that like 19, 1952 and a couple of the surrounding years, but like 19, 1952 in particular is a very important year for UFO, UFO sightings. There's some pretty important stuff that happened. Yeah, and I just wanted to go over a handful of cases leading up to the events just to sort of set the tone. So on July 13th, an airliner that was about 60 miles southwest of Washington, D.C., flying at about 11,000 feet, saw a light below them. It flew up to their level and hovered to their left for several minutes. The pilot flashed the airplane's landing lights and when he did that, the UFO went up into, flew up into the air very quickly out of sight in a steep climb, just shoom, out of nowhere. The next day on July 14th, the crew of a Pan American airliner flying from New York to Miami saw eight UFOs near Newport News, Virginia, about 130 miles south of Washington, D.C. 
And those were just like lights. They weren't doing anything like the last one. I, it, not that I could find. On July 16th, another sighting from Newport News, uh, this time from the, a ground observer. This happened at about 9 p.m. in the evening. A high-ranking scientist and his friend saw two amber-colored lights that were too big to be aircraft lights going north. The lights suddenly did a 180-degree turn, reversing direction, and they seemed to jockey for position after the turn. A third light joined them from the west, and uh, they kind of went in formation. They continued south, and then they were soon joined by several more lights before they disappeared. The witnesses said that there were no sound and there were no known aircraft in the area. So that's just a little little taste, a little appetizer of what was going on. But in truth, it, you can go back and look at news reports. You can look at Blue Book files. There were dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of these in 1952 leading up to the events we're going to talk about over Washington, D.C. There's no end in sight to the number of UFOs you can see during this time period. Some of them had very direct similarities, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the point is they're all they're all behaving in a very similar way. So that's Yeah. It's not just the it's not just the multiple independent witnesses of the DC sightings. It's also around the entire country a lot of these have similarities, which I think to me leads uh lends a little more weight to the the fact that this might be a real thing and not just yeah. some kind of made up hoax. I mean, how could it be a hoax at this yeah, point, and, you know? Yeah, and not a not a weather phenomenon. You know? Oh yeah, no, no. We'll get to that later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a common, a very common narrative, right? It was weather or stars, right? But did you want to start us in with the uh, basic outline of events, ETA? Yeah, yeah. We'll start off. Um, so, so this event uh, or events, I guess you could say, um, happened uh, over the course of two weekends, basically. I, I guess um, the the main events that, that are reported on. So it happened on July 19th and 20th and July 26th and 27th. Now, the reason why it happened over these two dates, uh, over the two weekends, were, were because it went over the midnight period of time. You know what I mean? It went over zero hundred hours. So, so um, I, I guess we'll, we'll start, start with the 19th and 20th. Um, so the, the first person that, that had reported anything from what uh, I believe it was at eight. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, 11 o'clock p.m., right? Yeah, I have 11.40 p.m., and that was Edward Nugent, who I'm hoping is like a distant relative of Ted Nugent, just because that would be fun, but he probably oh, isn't. <laughs> hey, some cat some scratch yeah. fever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, so it looks like I didn't put the 11.40 in my notes here, but I did put the 11, so I'll get half credit. Yeah. Well, it was 1952. Eh, close enough. I mean, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, whichever comes first. Yeah. 40 minutes one way or the other. doesn't really matter too much, I suppose. No, well, it kind of does. <laughs> but, <laughs> so, yeah. well, but yeah, anyways, let's, <laughs> yeah, let's move on, though. <laughs> so, yeah, at, 11, at 11.40 on Saturday, July 19th, 1952, Edward Nugent, an air traffic controller at Washington National Airport, and that airport, for anybody unfamiliar, is about three miles south of the heart of the city, and today, I believe it's called uh, Ronald Reagan National Airport. I think it's been renamed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyways, this air traffic controller was, at the time, there had just been a shift change, and he was working by himself, and he saw seven objects on his radar scope. Uh, he called all of his, ra his uh, radar scope watch and air traffic control buddies over so they could look at it too. 
But what they saw was um, those seven objects were a little bit southeast of Andrews Air Force Base. And uh, this airport actually at the time had two different types of radars and both picked up the objects. That's an important detail because it would be very, very unlikely for both radars that are different kinds of radars to have the exact kind of malfunction or for both of them to be fooled by the exact weather pattern, right? They, I mean, mm-hmm. it just, it doesn't really make sense that they would both have the exact malfunction or get the same readings if they were different models, especially. So anyways, the there was also a radar at Andrews Air Force Base that picked up the object. So we actually have three different air, t- uh, three different radars all picking up the same stuff. Um, that not every object seen this evening or the next weekend was picked up by all three radars, but most of them were picked up by at least two. And I'll just say that ahead of time. So we don't have to go over which ones were picked up by which, you know, every time yeah. and bog down the discussion. But yeah, anyways, there's, there's a lot of correlating interaction between these two, uh, these multiple groups, groups of air traffic controllers that yeah. were, where they're communicating between each other and uh, basically, just like relaying the same blips that they're they're seeing, and uh, it's it's one of the reasons why I love this story is because not only do these air traffic controllers see it on the on their radar screen, but some of them actually step outside and observe it in real life as well, like you know, with their eyes. You know, it's just they're like, all right, we see on the the radar screen right there. They step outside. Well, there it is. Like I find that amazing. I don't know. It's just. It's, it's, there's, there's not a whole lot of stories where you can get this kind of, uh, interaction, you know? Yeah. Or, or this kind of really good hardcore data. Yes. So you can oh, have, absolutely. you can have a UFO sighting, but I mean, like in a previous episode, I saw something, I don't know what it was, is it probably a satellite or whatever, but, um, without any sort of instrumented data, it's really just a light in the sky. But here we have actual instrumented data being that, that being the radars picking up very important, uh, you know, position speed and this kind of thing. So we have like hard concrete data to go along with the visual sightings. And that's why I was saying it was like the Holy grail along with the fact that there are multiples of independent witnesses. So, you know, if people didn't know each other ahead of time, they're not going to collaborate on a hoax. They're just not. Yeah. You know, well, and also, so the type of radar, I guess we could kind of set the scene a little bit too. So the radar screen that they're looking at, um, it's kind of like you, I'm sure plenty of people have seen it like, um, in in movies and stuff that they they have watched, uh, it has, you know, uh, um, it sweeps across a a round screen, you know, the range is a hundred miles. So, um, every 10 seconds, the uh, the radar sweeps in a circular motion, you know. So you'll, that's that's when you get the blips. You know what I mean? So so there there are multiple blips, which which some people say that like caused confusion within the air, air traffic controllers because like these blips were, you know. All right, so this is according to like you know the the um, the narrative that the the Air Force put out and what have you with the uh, the inversion layer that was above Washington D.C. at that time. The uh, what was it? Some kind of weather inversion layer, right? Yeah. So what can happen is you can get, um, I, so I'm not fully understanding cause I'm not a scientist, but basically you get an inversion layer where you have, um, the, the temperatures of the air reverse. So it's supposed to get colder as it goes up, but you can have a layer of hot air above a layer of cold air and that can kind of fool the radars. Yeah. But, yeah. And th- they also claim that that also can cause like, cause like a light refraction. So that also, yeah, you know, it can. I guess they, they it tried actually to explain can. that away with, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So 
that's one of the things that they also try to explain away uh, with the visual sightings as well. Right. Which is, uh, if you look at what the witnesses are saying, it's, there's no way <laughs> that's bullshit. <laughs> uh, there, yeah. There's too many of them, you know, but, but, but let's get into it though. Yeah. Let's do it. So yeah, continue. I'm sorry. I, I, I interrupted you. Oh, did you? I, I don't know. I probably interrupted you too. It's all good. <laughs> Which, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, anyways, the objects that they caught, remember there are seven of them. They were traveling around at a, like a lazy speed of 100 to 130 miles an hour. And then sometimes they would, they would speed off at a very fast speed. Uh, sometimes they would disappear from the radar scope entirely between sweeps. Other times they would be clocked at about 7,000 miles per hour, which is like Mach 9.1. It's ludicrous. Still to this day, the SR-71 holds the airspeed record and that's at uh, somewhere in the ballpark of 2,000 miles an hour. And that's actually, in order to get that fast, it has to go almost into space. Even to this day, we don't have anything even close to that speed that can fly in the, you know, that low. Because there's so much friction that it would literally cause the thing to melt at that speed. We, they just, we don't have the technology to do that. So that's you know one thing that really captures my imagination about this case is that uh, that not only did we not have the technology then, not even close, we still don't to this day. But anyways, maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself there. Um, the the <laughs> Edward Nugent, his radar, they checked it for malfunction. Again, it was multiple radars, so it's sort of redundant, but they wanted to make sure. So they double-checked it, and they found that it was not malfunctioning when they while they were taking some of these crazy readings. And uh, the... The air traffic controllers knew right away that something weird was going on. And I, I wrote down a quote because I liked the way it was phrased. Um, it pretty much, I think, encapsulates how they were feeling at the time. One of the controllers said, We knew immediately that a very strange situation existed. Their movements were completely radical compared to those of ordinary aircraft. And these are, so this is one of the busiest airports. And the air traffic controllers working there are some of the most talented and experienced in the entire nation. They know what the heck an airplane looks like. They're not going to be fooled by any sort of mirage. They can tell the difference between a mirage or whatever. And they all insisted, every single one of them insisted that these radar returns were caused by actual solid somethings. They don't know what, but it was not a mirage. It was not an inversion. I've heard a couple times that, that, that it was supposedly stated by these individuals that they, they not only just said that it was solid, solid objects, but it showed up on the radar how a solid metallic object object would. Right, yes. You know? And, and not, not only that also, but, you know, I've heard it um, theorized a, a couple by a couple different sources that, you know, it, it was weather anomalies that were showing up on the, the radar, right? I mean, some of this, uh, you know, weather inversion, what have you, that, that was going on at the time um, was also used as, as an excuse. But the, the thing is that the, even though the, this radar technology was relatively primitive, I guess you could say to what we have now, these men had, had hundreds of hours on this technology. They, had, they were very, very familiar with it. They knew on this type of radar what like weather looked like. You know, especially because they had been working in this area, this particular area for quite some time, they were familiar with it. You know, the the reason why all these anomalies caught their attention because it was so very out of the ordinary, and because of the way everything was working together, the way uh, it was moving on the radar, the, um, the things that, the things that they saw they saw with their own eyes. 
you know, it's, it's a, yeah, like, like, like we had mentioned before and alluded to, um, the data all stacked together as a kind of a whole story. You know what I mean? Like a whole picture, a big broad picture. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's quite staggering what happened, what it, what it appears what happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. So let's, let's get to a little bit more details on what they saw this first night. While they were watching these first contacts zooming around the radar scope, there, like you mentioned earlier, there were a visual confirmation of the objects on the radar that people in the tower were able to see. And as the evening went on, at some point, they began to see objects in every sector of the radar scope. So they, they were, it wasn't just seven of these. At some point, they were everywhere and they started moving over the White House and the Capitol. And those are obviously restricted fly zones. And when that happened, they they called Andrews Air Force Base, and you know that's when the alert really went up. Um, and at Andrews Air Force Base, they also, like I said earlier, saw this, these on their radar. Yeah, one, it, it was Bar- Barnes, right? Barnes was the one that was talking to uh, Andrews, uh, Andrews uh, Air Force Base, and didn't didn't he ask him like like uh, Can you guys scramble some jets? And they're like, uh, basically like like bad news. We don't have any. We can scramble right here right now, but we can scramble some from a different Air Force Base, right? Okay, where were we? Talking about uh, called. Uh, oh yeah, I was gonna. Okay, I'm, I'm looking at. I'm looking at my notes right here. I'm looking at the name Howard Coughlin, and I'm <laughs> laughing on the inside. <laughs> that sounds like that sounds like my kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, that fellow seems all right. He seems just yeah. about as all right as Mister Nugent. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Where were we? So I think I was about to talk about Airman William Brady at Andrews Air Force Base. Because he's one of the many witnesses there who had a visual sighting and he's a credible he reported, one too. he what? He's a credible one too. Oh yeah. He saw an object which appeared to be like an orange ball of fire trailing a tail. It was unlike anything I had ever seen before. As he tried to alert the other personnel in the tower, the strange object took off at an unbelievable speed. So that's what that particular fella saw. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that, that same guy had, had, had described it basically as he even said, like it, it was, had fat, had traveled faster than any meteor or like shooting star that he had ever seen before. So the guy was like in, in the, in that moment, like he was thinking about like how odd this was that he was looking at, you know what I mean? He, and he was, you know, inside of his head, he, he was, uh, you know, comparing it with other, other experiences that he knew in real life. You know what I mean? So like, uh, th- the the dude, I mean, in many of these these witnesses, they show signs of thinking very rationally while they're observing what they are observing. You know what I mean? So, and that's that's one reason why I give some of their testaments such such credibility, and one of the reasons why this this case is is so very substantial for me, at least. You know what I mean? Because the the witnesses behind it, the people who witnessed it, are are professionals. These people are, are very experienced in what they do. They, you know, they know what the hell they're looking at. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. And the, I don't know if the average person has, has been around military people before, but they're not like your, they're not like a, your typical civilian watching, I don't know, the twilight zone on Saturday night and they hear a bump yeah. outside and they run outside and go, well, Oh my God, it's the flat. They definitely monster don't operate or whatever, on you know? emotion. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
They yeah, definitely like don't if, operate on, on emotion. Anything that they, if they're willing to even mention something like a UFO, <laughs> if they're yeah. even willing to use that term, if they are willing to use that term, whatever the hell they're looking at is substantial, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I went to Fourth uh, of July a few years back. We were visiting our relatives in North Carolina and we went to um, the, my brother in law is actually. Uh, former military. So he got us on a base. They always, it's uh, Fort Bragg in North Carolina. And they always they have, have like a really, really cool fireworks. Yeah. Really awesome fireworks show there. The interesting thing to me was just seeing how, like, cause I, I've never really been around military people that much, but like just seeing how they act, like when you roll up to the, the security checkpoint or whatever, and like seeing them walk around and stuff, like they're very, um, I don't know, like business-like, I guess that's not even the right way to put it, but like that, I guess I'd say they ain't fucking around. They, I mean, it's they're very professional, very matter of fact. I guess they they do not entertain any nonsense. You know, there there's no shenanigans and tomfoolery going on at the air, <laughs> at these bases. You know, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. guess is is what I mean to say. I don't know if that well, made sense. They can't afford to. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <clears throat> their their business is serious freaking business. Yeah. So several times uh, moving along. <laughs> The, mm-hmm. from that, that little bit of a diversion there, uh, mm-hmm. several times during the night, um, the, these UFOs were seen by, um, airplane crews. Uh, for example, just after midnight, a capital airline flight that had just taken off from Washington national, uh, was asked by the controller to look out for the UFOs or unusual lights is what they asked them. The pilot saw a light to his right after he cleared the traffic pattern over the airport um, and then it, the light turned off suddenly. And then over the next 14 minutes, the pilot saw six more lights and these were all corroborated by radar later on at about 2 AM, another pilot that was approaching the airport from the South saw a light following his airplane at eight o'clock. So that'd be to the back and to the left. And this was also corroborated by radar. The light followed the airliner until it was about four miles from the runway. And at that point it sped away. And just imagine if you're like a passenger and you see this light following the airplane, it's just such a trip. How would you react? I, I keep on thinking about that, you know, like, yeah, uh, yeah I'm sorry. Keep on going. I, I probably would have crapped my pants is what I would have done. <laughs> At least a little bit. Yeah. So th- those are, uh, there were, there's more, but those are just a couple of examples of um, air crews, uh, civilian air crews that saw, also saw these. So it wasn't just military. Although personally, I find the military witness statements to be more credible just because like we're saying, that's just how military people are. They're not as likely, in my opinion, to make stuff up, even though I suppose it's possible. Um, but there's one of the most interesting incidents at the night. This is one of the few times that all three radars tracked a single target. They were tracking one of the targets and between sweeps of the scope, it just disappeared so it didn't streak off. It didn't move off. It was there, and then it wasn't. So that that could be that that particular target was a mistake or an error or a weather pattern that vanished. But if it was seen from three different radars, from three different positions, it probably was a real solid object. And if it was a real solid object, this suggests that it was able to move very quickly, perhaps much faster than 7,000 miles an hour, perhaps almost instantaneously. Yeah, and, and not just that, but but all three people who are well, all three observe uh, uh, edit. Sorry, <laughs> I I fumbled my rhymes right there. Yeah. Um, hey, it's tricky to okay. rock a rhyme. 
It is, man. It's very tricky, you know? Uh, it's difficult. Wait, no. Is it tricky or difficult? <laughs> no, it's hard. Anyways. It's hard to rock a ride. It's hard it's to hard. rock a ride. No, it's hard. That's right. It's hard to rock a ride. <laughs> yo, no, yo, okay. it's tricky. <laughs> so, so from all three points that we're observing these radar blips, not only did uh, the the objects act the same, they, they were observing the same things at the same time, and they were all reporting the same thing. It's just, you know, it, it's amazing. I mean, like like we said before, how much more evidence do you need? You right. Know I mean? it's, it's, and everybody involved were professionals, like we had said before. These were all people that, that are, are more sound of mind and, and more kind of in the moment, I would say, I would think because of, of how, how professional that they have to be in their every day-to-day life, you know? Right. Or the day, their day-to-day every life, whatever. Shut up, dude. But, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's I, I expect a certain level of, of, of uh, observation with these type of professionals is what I'm saying. But, right. Yeah, I'm sorry. What were you going to say? So. Oh, I, I was just going to say air traffic control is, it's a very stressful job. Uh, so the, the civilian air traffic controllers at the airport, not the military people who are involved with this, but um, those people are constantly on the lookout for UFOs, not alien UFOs, but just uh, sometimes an airplane can wander into a, an air zone that they're not supposed to be because the pilots kind of doesn't know what the hell he's doing or whatever. And that's very dangerous. You could have hundreds of people could die just from a fender bender in the air, basically. So they're constantly on the lookout for this kind of stuff. And like, they're not looking for anything crazy or weird, but they have no choice but to look for these things and be careful for them so the airplanes don't run into something that's not supposed to be there. To repaint the picture, you got all these uh, air traffic controllers freaking the hell out in their towers, observing these all these blips, stuff that they're observing as, as being physical objects in the air. That not only are they observing on the radar, but they're observing in, in with their eye bowels, <laughs> you know, with their with their with their eyeballs in, in real time, you know, at, you know, as they're 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 you know, you got people standing outside the tower observing this, you know in the sky. Then you have other people, you know, uh, talking to them, what they're, you know, what they're, uh, seeing on the radar. I just like, my imagination goes wild. This is one of those situations where it's like, I think they can make a pretty, uh, decent, uh, sci-fi action movie out of this, to be honest. Yeah, this would, this would make like a really good thriller or something. It, except if, if it, well, if it weren't for independence day. Yeah. Except, yeah, that's what I was saying. Except <laughs> at, at the end, at the end of this incident, obviously the white house does not get blown up. So it's not as exciting, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, leading up to those events though. But so they actually did scramble at 3 a.m. They finally got around to scrambling an F-94 uh, to try to intercept some of these things. And when they did that, the, the F-94, uh, they, they were, fly, I think there's two of them. They were flying around and they didn't really see a whole lot because as soon as they scrambled them, they, uh, the UFOs would like leave the area where the jets were. So eventually after uh, 20 minutes or so, they ran low on fuel and they had to return back to base. And when they did that, the UFOs uh, returned to the areas where the jets yeah. were. I find that hilarious. Yeah. So the, um, this, this whole thing with like fleets of UFOs over the White House, this went on all night. And uh, the last detection was like at 5.30 a.m. But just mm-hmm. imagine that the most technologically advanced jet that we had at the time couldn't even get 
anywhere near these things. We were completely at their mercy, whatever they were. Every every interaction between th- those uh, jet fighters, the the uh, would you say they're they're F ninety four Starfires? That's that's right. Uh, which yeah. actually is, it's I think they actually look look pretty cool. Uh, oh, yeah, but anyways, I look badass. <laughs> Yeah, they're they're pretty cool looking freaking pieces of machinery, but but anyways, um, it seemed like the whole time every interaction these these jet fighters had with with these UFOs, it seemed like the whole time they were playing like a cat and mouse game. They were just messing with them. Like and and and, and you know, Agent Anderson and myself had a, a discussion before we started recording here about how it seems like a lot of these interactions were were geared towards like testing or, you know, like what our abilities were or, you know, like, like just seeing what we were capable of or even how uh, we would react to a situation uh, yeah. in that. Yeah, that as well. Yes. And, and yeah, it just like that, that after you said that, cause you were the one that said that first and, and I was like, yeah, that's holy shit. That's a good freaking point. Cause like I, I didn't really, that point didn't really necessarily dawn on me until you said that. And I was like, oh, holy crap, you're right. <laughs> what if, right? It's like one of those like, what if moments, you know? What would happen over and over again, not just on this particular night and not just in Washington, D.C., but in a lot of the events surrounding this time in 1952, when they scrambled a jet fighter, what would happen is that the UFOs would be traveling very slowly and they would let our jets get within lock-on range and as soon as our jets locked on, the UFOs would, they would increase speed and they would leave the area and they would break that lock. So if you're thinking, if these things are just kind of scoping us out, they wait for us to come near and then they see what we do. Well, we lock on with our weapon systems and they're like, all right, well, I guess these things are very hostile. So we're going to get the heck out of here. So yeah, it's that- almost like, the, yeah, like, they, like they're giving, giving them a chance. Yeah, you know, like oh, all the well, they locked on. All right, come on, guys. You know, that was kind of our our discussion earlier that we had that Agent ETA was talking about. Is yeah, it's almost yeah. like they? I mean, obviously these things were very superior to us. So if it was, uh, you know, some kind of spacefaring race and they wanted to Hulk smash the shit out of us, they could have. So obviously they didn't want to. If that's what they were, I don't know that this is the case. But you could see it in this way that. They were just kind of seeing what we were going to do. Are we hostile or whatever? And they find out, okay, well, it turns out these guys are really, really hostile. So we can't really land on the White House lawn and say hello. It's like, guys, stop, stop locking your weapons onto us. So we can just like land and say hello. But no, we kept aiming our guns at them and threatening them. So they kept leaving. So that's, that's how a lot of these incidents went, not just on this weekend and the following weekend. But like I said, on a lot of the incidents surrounding this date, this happened over and over again where our jets would get within range, lock on, then they would speed up and go to a far distance and let our jets slowly approach again and lock on over and over again. That's what we mean, or that's what ETA was referring to when he yeah, says cat and yeah. mouse, is they were playing with us like a game, like we were the mice and they were the cats, basically. You know, mm-hmm. and, and imagine if you're a fighter pilot and this is what you're going to deal with, and you're like, oh man, what if I have to engage this enemy? and the shit's going to hit the fan, I'm toast, you know? How stressful must that have been to an air pilot, to a a fighter pilot who has to assume that this target could possibly be hostile, and it's playing with you. Yeah, you're realizing how much more advanced whatever you're playing with is, 
And that like you're yeah you're you're just uh, you're yeah you're a little speck a little uh, mean meaningless basically to them you know, but yeah it's it's and you, you know one thing that I actually really kind of because obviously like, like we said before, these events happened over two different weekends, right? So like we have the you know the nineteenth and the twentieth, and then we also have the twenty sixth and the twenty seventh. Well, in between then there was like a whole like a a, a firestorm of like you know. Um, uh, articles and stuff that were were written, you know, uh, within like you know the newspapers and, uh, and you know all the media the, in that day, um, you know, and, and it was one of those things that like caught hold and like you know there there's all sorts of different like you know titles of uh, articles like saucers swarm over capital, you know, and um, Washington D.C. under attack from from alien forces, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff, right? And I guess it probably depends on what what uh, area you lived in was. You know, going to depend on what what title you read, but at any rate, you know, um, that was after the first weekend, and then it happened again. <laughs> you know, uh, on the twenty sixth and twenty seventh. <laughs> you know, it's not just that, but leading up to this point, Project Blue Book was getting um, more reports than they'd ever gotten before and ever gotten since. They were getting about thirty reports a day leading up to this, and after the first event. That uh, Rupert said in his book, anyways, that their number of reports tripled. They were getting so many good UFO reports every day. People were seeing weird stuff flying around. It was unreal. Yeah, and, and wasn't he also in Washington D.C. during the time of the first uh, sightings? But he yeah. just ha- he he didn't see him himself. He he just uh, I, I read that he got um, he basically got notified of on the twenty first. Yeah, it was just well, obviously obviously too late. You know that Monday. I was. I was going to actually mention this because I was kind of like, what? So according to Rupel, this is in his own book, which by the way, you can catch uh, on an earlier episode. It's chapter 12. Uh, He says that he was just so happened to coincidentally be in Washington on Monday, July 21st, which is the Monday after the Saturday when the first sighting happened. He just so happened to be in town from flew in from Dayton, Ohio, just for whatever reason. And he didn't know anything about these sightings until he saw it on the newspapers. And uh, then he went to the Pentagon to talk to people. But I'm kind of like, what? Like, you're well, telling me. I remember, you know, one of the one of the funny things that, that I remember being in, interjected into this also is that he claims uh, he claimed that when he was in Washington, D.C., he, he wanted to go in and in, in like a travel around and investigate. Right. But they wouldn't give him a car. To drive around, right. he, they told him that he had to spend his own money on a taxi. Right. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? that doesn't make any so, sense. Yeah. So you're telling me that a <laughs> fleet of UFOs is flying over the White House and the military didn't know about it? That's what he says. He says not just him, but all of military intelligence yeah. didn't know anything about this. But obviously yeah, they he, did because they scrambled to... fighters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. if yeah, yeah. If, scam- if fighters were scrambled in response to a UFO encounter sighting, yeah. whatever it is, whatever they want to call it, yeah, I mean, he would be one of the first guys I would think that would be aware of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then like ETA says, he tries to get a car so he can drive down to the airport and the air bases to talk to witnesses and the the military just says, "Nope." You can't get a car. It's like, wait, hold on. This is the guy in charge of investigating this stuff, and they're not giving him a car. Something doesn't smell right here. Well, I would think he would have caught he if he flew there, which I'm assuming he did. You know, I'm assuming he would have got a car right after he got off the plane. You'd think. What else? Right. Is, how's he going to travel? Just, or at least somebody probably picked him up. I don't know. You know. But, yeah. But uh, 
Yeah, no, it's it's ridiculous. It's absolutely yeah. ridiculous. You know, I mean, the, the, basically he claimed he claimed that like he he didn't rank high enough to deserve a car. Basically, is what he said. You know. Yeah, which he his rank was kind of low for his position, but the the following event, um, he claims that the following weekend he found out about those sightings. Because a, a, a not a reporter, a journalist named Bob Jenna from Life Magazine called him to ask about it. He says, I didn't know about it until Bob Jenna called me, which again is yeah. the exact same thing he says about this one. And at that point, I'm kind of uh-huh. like, I think Rupert might be uh, fibbing a little bit here. And yeah, this is it's, it's, it's one of those one of those general routines where like, I didn't know what happened. I didn't see nothing. What? What? I don't know why he would lie about this, what the agenda is, but it kind of goes along with the military sort of not being truthful about this stuff. But this is what I mean when I taught, when I, I think the first chapter of Rupert's book, when I read that chapter, I said that you have to take into consideration who he was and where he was coming from. And his book is by far the best UFO book I've ever read, but you have to take whatever he says with a grain of salt because you don't know what sort of agendas are at play here. And that's kind of what I mean. When you, when you look at the details, some of it looks a little weird when you, when you kind of go over it with a fine tooth comb. No, absolutely. Knowing a little bit about the perspective that he was working off of really, really helps you understand more about what's in that book. Anybody who hasn't listened to those, uh, if you don't want to listen to, to my dumbass reading those chapters, you can actually get the book for free online in like a PDF format or whatever. Just Google it. It's uh, Edward J. Ruppelt, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects. It's in the public domain, so you can download it if you want. But it, anyways, it's a good book, and it talks about, obviously, a lot of the stuff we're talking about. There's a good amount of overlap. But this is an interesting enough case that I wanted to do like a whole separate episode on it, because it's it's just crazy, man. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's a whole lot going on here. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the the fall the second weekend. The second weekend was very similar to the first weekend, but this time it was a little different because there was uh, three military people actually went to the Washington National Airport tower and they were hanging out with the the radar operators. And that would be um, one of the most prominent ones would have been Al Chop, who was the spokesperson for Blue Book, the, you know, the public spokesperson guy. Not to be confused with El Chapo. Yeah. Yeah. Completely different people. And one, yeah. of the, one of the things he did that really fueled the speculation that the Air Force was keeping uh, some kind of conspiracy under wraps was he kicked people out. He kicked the reporters out of the radar room. So there were reporters were there because everybody knew what was going on. There was UFOs and stuff. And he gets there and he just kicks them all out and says, uh, we got like top secret stuff going on here. You got, you guys got, got to take off. And at, you know, obviously the reporters are going to be like, well, what are they hiding? Obviously they're hiding something or they wouldn't kick us out. Um, it might not have been that they were hiding anything specific. It might just have been that, uh, that they wanted in case something crazy happened, they didn't want it to get out in the public by, yeah. they wanted to filter it before it got to the newspapers. Cause the newspapers, even back then, they've always just sort of sensationalized things. So yeah. maybe they didn't want stuff getting out of control. They were worried about mass hysteria or whatever. But at any rate, there was there's some military people there witnessing events and personally seeing the UFOs. Uh, so it's a little different than civilians saying, oh, sure, I saw it. And then the people taking the reports. Yeah, and afterwards also, uh, Mr. Chop there, the spokes, 
one of the spoke, uh, spokesmen for Project Blue Book, um, all he all he said that he basically just denied reporters uh, to request uh, 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 photographs of the radar screens. Yeah, he said no. Nope, and what nope. he really did was was completely deny everybody like access to the area at all. You know, right? Yeah. And these are these are the people that are in Project Blue Book who are taking the reports. So the the fact that they were there that. Uh, I can't actually, I'm not aware of any other case where the people from Blue Book actually witnessed the UFOs. Usually they're investigating after the fact. This time they saw them and that's pretty exciting in and of itself. But uh, anyways, they, they had once again by 930. So this started again, this started at uh, 8, 840, did I say? Let me mm-hmm. scroll mm-hmm. up here in my notes. I think I said 840. Well, 815. Oh, no, 815. 8, 8, 8, yeah, yeah. 8.15. So by 9.30... The radar once again had multiple objects appearing in every sector of the radar. They were just all over the place. And again, some of them were moving slowly. Some of them were reversing direction, doing 180s. Some were going as fast as 7,000 miles an hour. And it was it was very similar to the previous weekend. But this time, they scrambled a couple of airplanes a little earlier at 1130. Uh, and uh, two times they scrambled during this night that I could found that I could fi- find, found, find. Okay, so... <laughs> yeah, whichever comes first. <laughs> yeah, whichever comes first. So twice they scrambled two aircraft, and both times, one of those pilots didn't really see anything, and one of the pilots did see strange lights. So mm-hmm. they they saw strange lights, one of the pilots, and tried to intercept. Uh, during this interception, um, according to Al Chop, the pilot said, I see them now, and they're all around me. What should I do? And nobody answered because we didn't know what to tell him. It just Wait, hey, hey. <laughs> what? Did you say El Chop? Uh, no, I said Al Chop. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Well, okay, well, I, okay. El Chop. I didn't expect you. Okay, I, I didn't expect you to abbreviate Albert, but El okay. Chopo. But my, my bad, my bad. I misheard you. Uh, wait, wait. I said what? El Chop. So what the what? El wait, Chopo. What? But <laughs> my bad. I sorry. I sorry. No, but just imagine. <laughs> That you're Al Chop, you're on the ground, and you're supposed to be in charge or directing people somehow. And the pilot in the air says, "They're all over the place. They're all around me. What do you want me to do?" And he's like, "Oh, uh, uh, like, yeah. How well, crazy is that?" Uh, re- return back to the airport, I suppose. Uh, uh, I don't know. Like, get yeah. out of there. Eject, get the eject. hell out of there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't have much experience in this besides uh, besides taking a uh, aviation class when I was in high school, which taught, which taught me very little because I, I ditched most of it. But anyways, <laughs> I, I hope my parents don't listen to this episode. But um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, continue. I'm sorry. I digress. Oh, yeah. Just some some of the details of this case like that, like the military was there. The people who are supposed to be in charge of UFOs were there and they didn't know what to do. It's like, I don't know. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, like they didn't say anything. Yeah, it's crazy, but it, it froze. Well, I mean, what, I mean, there's no amount of training that you're ever going to receive. That's going to prepare you for that. Yeah. And the, the air pl- aircraft we had, the F 94 Starfires that were in the air, they didn't have any capability to deal with these things at all. And that might be also part of the reason why hey, they didn't answer them. What's up? I tell you what, I tell you one damn thing though. What? I don't want to. I don't want to hear you say anything negative about those airplanes because they got some sexy lines. All right. Oh yeah, dude. Uh, them lines. I mean, I mean, I, I'm not going to necessarily say they like that plane has birthing hips, but like, I'm just saying it, it's got some curves. 
That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, something a little different happened on the second <laughs> on this second event. I like how you sidestepped that. Yeah. Like you're like, all right, well, let's keep <laughs> right. on moving here. You go ahead and have fun with your airplanes. <laughs> no, I appreciate over there. you. No, I appreciate you. <laughs> uh, I'm just, we're we're bumping up against an hour here, so I'm trying to keep yeah. it on track a little bit. Yeah. No, there's some editing. We're yeah. we're gonna have to do some editing. Yeah, I think yeah, it's <laughs> or uh, you at least Whatever. at least twenty percent. I'm guessing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> no, but I so sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. So, anyways, uh, the second event, um, something interesting happened. So when the pilots got close to the when the the intercept went to uh, go to the uh, targets, the UFOs actually kind of left the area at one point when the jets were trying to chase them, and shortly after they left the area. They showed up. Well, it might not be the same ones, but, you know, it kind of seems like it is. But anyways, after they left the scopes around Washington National, Langley Air Force Base, which is in the area, started picking up UFOs. And they also had a lot of visual witnesses that also saw stuff like bright lights that were rotating and alternating colors and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So Langley scrambled some a jet that went to try to intercept and when it got it got close, it, it achieved a radar lock, and then at that point, the object sort of sped off again off of Langley scopes, and after, yeah, it reacted. Yeah, shortly after that, they showed up on national scopes again, and then after that is when we have the second intercept on national, which I just just think about that. Like that's pretty cool that we have that much corroborating data in this case. That mm-hmm. you know we have we have the. Well, and- and even even Harry Truman himself got involved too. Oh you know, yeah, I mean the whole time, the whole time they were, they were sending like you know uh, inquiries and stuff like that. Like what the hell is happening? What the hell's yeah. going on? Oh dude, <laughs> you know like, like you know they they like obviously like you know all the all the uh, the uh, relating entities within the government that were observing this weren't just freaking out. It was also the White House, you know. Yeah, I I imagine how it went is uh, Harry Truman said, "See Harold, chap, what the fuck is going on above my home?" <laughs> I say, yeah. I say. <laughs> yeah. He ha- he's asking the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary says, "Oh, let me call the uh Air Force Defense Secretary or whatever, uh, the Secretary of the what? Air Force." Uh, uh, I'll be right what? back. What, he, what is this malarkey I see before? He, he comes us. back and he doesn't want to get fired. So he says, oh, <laughs> sir, it's a uh, weather inversion and Venus. Uh, nothing to worry oh. about. <laughs> well, yes. Yes, sir. It is malarkey and shenanigans, as, as a matter of fact. <laughs> yeah, it's weather inversion. Some of that weather weather inversion I've been hearing about. Bullshit, fellow. What is that? Oh, sorry, sir. It's the aliens oh. again. Oh, aliens. I scoff in your general direction, sir. Oh. I guess. I mean, that's how it went, right? <laughs> I mean, in, in my imagination, you know. Uh, so anyways, um, this can, just like the previous event, it all continued until about sunrise when the, the targets left the radar and they stopped having visual sightings. And just like the previous time, there was a media storm. You know, the every paper was reporting on this stuff. It was front page news across the country and actually international news. Uh, mm-hmm. it was actually hit, hit the international news and oh, um, it whipped up, it, it whipped up quite the storm yeah. in its own time, which is one of the reasons like, that's one of the things I actually kind of wanted to talk about also. All right. I mean, I'm just going to make a, a quick, a quick little statement on it is I don't know why this case isn't brought up more nowadays. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause it's one of those situations where in its own time, 
this must have caused so, I mean, I mean, I, I hate to compare it to anything else, but, but I mean, like, as far as like, like, uh, it's not a terrorist event, but as far as like how much interest it created it, it, in its own day, it might've been similar to like a nine 11 or something. I'm not, oh I'm not, yeah. Like I said, I'm, 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 I'm not trying to compare it, you know, directly with that obviously there's 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 very little it it, it holds in common with that event but as far as the interest involved and like how how involved the population got you know what i mean absolutely yeah i don't see how this event couldn't have been extremely involved i mean most everybody in the damn nation must have known about it you know what i mean is yeah. what i'm saying yeah everybody it's, it's not unless you're disconnected from most people around you and just plain not paying attention <laughs> but you know i don't know how you could have not known about this event you know right what I mean? yeah which is which is one of the reasons why like i'm surprised now this event within our own you know um spheres i guess you could say you know uh it's it's mentioned mentioned quite a bit, but like for your average individual that's just kind of like dipping their toes into this kind of thing, you may you very well may not have ever even heard of this event, which is such an extremely important event. You know, like I don't know how you could not like there should be movies and TV series and 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 Japanese manga. <laughs> why not yeah. i don't know you know but like like the, I, I just i'm just i'm just saying like this is one of those events like like people should be screaming the details from the mountaintops you know what i mean like i, I don't know what else to say like I, i'm just more i'm just very surprised at how little i hear about this you know what i'm saying yeah i think part of the reason for that is that there really isn't any controversy about this one it's you have a couple of hardcore skeptics saying it was weather inversions or whatever, but it's really irrefutable that something strange was in the skies. You can't really refute that. Whereas a lot of the really big UFO cases that you hear of, like, let's say Roswell, like that's the big one, right? That case has a, a lot of controversy going for it. For example, the, the Air Force came out and gave a press release that they found a flying saucer in Roswell or, you know, in that area. And then they quickly retracted that within 24 hours or the next day or whatever. Well, not only that, but they also presented objects. Yeah. You know, which, and that first, that first, pre- I mean, I, this is a whole nother episode. Like, 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 right. like agent Anderson just said, you know, it's just like, and, and probably one of the reasons why we haven't covered it yet is it's one of those things where, I mean, how many times over you can, can you cover something? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, we, we we want to get to some some things that that haven't been covered as heavily, because you know I don't know it's just we want to point the finger towards stuff that may you may not know about. Yeah, I guess. You well, know? and because Roswell is so controversial, there's so much back and forth, and there's less on that case that is like a solid provable fact. There's less reliable yeah. information. So because of that, there's a whole lot more you can argue about. You could have arguments all day long about Roswell, whereas this case, yeah, it's not controversial. There was weird yeah, shit Roswell, happening. Roswell, th- there's a lot of gray area. Yeah, whereas this case, there's a lot of weird shit happening in a story. That's, I mean, there's nothing really to argue about. Whereas Roswell, you have like you have that press release, then the the Air Force retracts that, and then you have 
witnesses changing their stories throughout the years. Then you have the Air Force chiming in again many years later, twice trying to say the case is closed, but saying things that are provably false when they do that, that they had to have been doing on purpose, in my opinion, to stir up more controversy. Why they would want to do that is another episode. There's a lot of confusion. But yeah, a lot of confusion. there's a lot of confusion. You know? There's a lot of controversy, a lot of stuff to argue about. This case, there's nothing to argue about. It happened. We know it happened. Mm-hmm. End of story, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we don't really know what these things were. There's no way of knowing that because we weren't able to really capture them or, you know, get close enough to them. But yeah. we know there was something weird going on there. And that's, I think that's the main reason why cases like Roswell or Britain's Roswell, which is um, Rendlesham Forest or whatever, those cases mm-hmm. are not really slam dunk. So they're very controversial. There's a lot more arguments, so people really get invested in arguing their opinion on those stories. Whereas this one, you can read it and you kind of shrug your shoulders and go, all right, that's cool. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's one of those stories that likes, I guess it, 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 we talk about it, you know, from time to time here, it, your, your perspective. It really depends, right? So if you're kind of a little bit more open to it, you're going to look at this case and be like, like, holy MNF, you know what I mean? Like it's just the the amount of solid evidence here, in my opinion, be, because of the people who are testifying to this event, as far as who observed it. Um, it's I, I don't know how you could get more solid than this. As as far as I mean, besides like you know high quality video footage of something that is is obviously and, and you know can be proved as not being faked you know, first and foremost. Right. Um, but, but besides that, I, I don't know how you can get better. There's so damn much, so much testimony involved with this case and the people who are testifying, like I said, I mean, I obviously, I mean, you don't want to say it too many times here. I'm just being on the drum a little too hard now, but like, like I said, um, this is one of my favorite ones. It's just, there, there's a lot here. This is a good but, one. But let's, and yeah, well, like, uh, we, we've only just really barely scratched the surface here. I'm not even kidding when I say we could do at least 10 episodes on this case and the surrounding events, at least. There's really that mm-hmm. much to go into here. Oh, I mean, shit, we haven't even gotten to the CIA connections and, oh, yeah. and what, how they were involved, you know? I yeah. Mean, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, well, it's, it's not just the CIA alpha, also alpha. What, what the hell am I? <laughs> uh, I don't care. At this point, it's not just they, they created a whole new panel within like the intelligence community call, called the uh, the Robinson panel. Yeah. Which that's. Uh, yeah. Um, that happened. At, yeah. That happened in 1953. And that's like, that's a whole yeah. other episode. Just, just on the Robertson's panel. Easily a whole episode. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just, I mean, like, it, it, it just depends on, like, how much detail do you really want to go into? You yeah. Know what I mean, like, <laughs> we could keep, we could keep on going. It just, uh, at some point, we can't, we kind of have to make it not so analytical. I don't know. I, you know, it's just. There's, there's one more thing I wanted to mention, and that's after the second event, Major General John Samford held a press conference, and it was the biggest press conference since World War II. It was, uh, well attended and well viewed by the public, and during oh, big time. yeah during that press conference, he said that everything could be explained by misidentified stars and meteors and temperature inversions. And he also said that hey. the radar. What's up? What's up? 
I'm sorry. Edit, yeah. edit. I'm sorry, dude. I got I got to piss so fucking bad right now. All right, all right. Because I actually am very important, like uh, interested in this this part of the story. All right. Well, all right. Go I, piss. I, I, we'll I've start again, I, dude. I've been holding this bladder back for like the last like probably three minutes solid. <laughs> all right. All right. right back. I'm all sorry, right. dude. That was cool. That's cool. <laughs> All right, so let's. I'll start again with Major General Samford. One more thing I wanted to talk about was uh, the press conference held by Major General John Samford. It was the largest and best attended conference since World War II. It was a pretty big deal back in the day, and everybody was paying attention to it. Mm-hmm. During this news conference, he said that everything could be explained by misidentified stars and meteors and temperature inversions. He said that the radar returns were not caused by solid objects and that they posed no threat to national security. And the especially because of the military kicking the press out of the radar room, um, the press and the public, they thought it was all bullshit. They did not believe that for a minute. They thought it was all a cover-up of some kind or other, which kind yeah. of worked in the... So the Air Force, um, if Ruppelt is to be believed which I th- he makes a good case. He says basically the Air Force didn't really know what it was, so they lied and said that it was all this other stuff just to kind of keep people from panicking. And that does well, make and, sense. And also to, to keep people's you know um, trust in the Air Force also. Yeah. Because it, it, is, it is an authority. Right. You know, right? I mean, they're supposed to know what the hell they're doing. Right. right. So Yeah, if the average person doesn't believe that the Air Force can protect us from threats, then they're going to be very nervous in their day-to-day lives. And they're going to not have any faith in the government either. And that's a big thing, you know? Which is re- it's reasonable. Yeah. So the... <laughs> The, the end result was the exact opposite of what they were trying to achieve. And uh, people, you know, they, they made more people believe in this kind of stuff, not less. Um, yeah, it was like, yeah. It, it was like a reverse psychology of sorts. Yeah. Uh, and one other thing I wanted to touch on, I don't, I didn't really know where to put it in the episode, I guess. So at the end is good. But some of the witnesses, like the people who are in the tower and people with, basically people with the visual sightings um, in the military specifically, they later changed their testimony to say that they didn't really see anything at all and they only saw stars or whatever. And um, the really weird thing is, is that in his book, Ruppelt suggests that these witnesses were persuaded to change their stories, but he doesn't say who persuaded them. So you don't know really who would do this, but, the fact that Ruppelt said that in his book, mm-hmm. and you, keep in mind, this book was written by a military guy, and it was approved for publication by the military. Uh, did they just skim that part, and it kind of slipped through, and they didn't notice? Like, why would he put that in the book? Is it true? Did the did they really make these people change their testimony? Did they did he say this for some other reason? It's just a really kind of a weird little footnote, I guess, to the whole thing. Yeah. How, how would that be approved? Yeah. Right. I just can't wrap my head around why that, why he would say that in his book, you know, if it's true, which is it true? Maybe, maybe it's just casting doubt on the whole thing. Be- well, could, could that be, could that be a very, very early part of soft di- disclosure? It could be actually his, his mm-hmm. whole book reads like soft disclosure because he's in the middle Pretty much every chapter he says, well, there's a lot of weird stuff that happened, but some people think that it's this, whatever. He never really comes out and says, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, it was aliens. 
He says, well, yeah. we just don't know what it is. There's weird stuff and we can't explain it. And he goes over a lot of cases that are explainable and some of them that were hoaxes, but he goes over other cases that were not explainable. So it's, it's kind of a really interesting book in that, in that he's not hardcore to one side or the other. And I really actually appreciate that about the book. He tries to be in the middle. Yeah. But on the other mm-hmm. hand, when I see stuff like this, why would somebody from the military say that people from the military were forced to change their opinions? Like, it just kind of doesn't sit right that he would say something yeah. like that. Well, yeah, it kind of gives you pause and it makes you wonder, was this person really in the middle? Was this a genuine effort, what this person was doing? Or was it scripted the whole time? Right, yeah. It's, the whole, you know what I mean? There are rumors that his whole book was actually ghostwritten. So there was other people involved in writing the book, but I don't I couldn't find out I couldn't find any evidence that that was actually true. It was just sort of a rumor that people were talking about online on forums and stuff. Well, yeah, that that might be the kind of evidence that might be very in very short order. Yeah. You know I mean? And and one of the problems is that um after his second edition of his book came out where he added three chapters onto it, which is a whole, his book is like, you could do a whole episode just talking about his book. But anyways, he died mm, very yeah. shortly after that at the young age of 37, I believe. So a lot of stuff that we might've found out by him, unfortunately we were never able to, but so we, we kind of just have to wonder or spitball or, you know, hypothesize or whatever, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But this this case or this Washington flap was kind of pivotal. This bleeds into other things like the Robertson panel and things like that. But after this point, Project Blue Book went from investigating stuff to trying to debunk everything. So th- this was, like ETA was saying earlier, is probably one of the, if not the most important UFO sighting ever. It was, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, because, because basically the Robertson panel... Because of these events, they they came to the, to the conclusion that that um that's how they ought to address uh you know the public right you know what I mean and we don't know what people were discussing behind the scenes behind closed doors, but we do know that they were afraid of mass hysteria and things like that. Yeah, that that was well as as far as their their public reasoning, that that's what they stated. Yeah, but it begs the question. Obviously, that if the UFOs are just, you know, asteroids and Venus or weather inversions or whatever, eventually people would stop panicking very quickly, actually, once they found out that there was nothing to panic about. So if they're worried that there's something to panic about, maybe there's actually something to panic about, right? I mean, quite possibly, right? (laughs) Maybe these mass groups of individuals who are observing something and then reporting it or, you know what I mean? All right. So like one of the things that kind of strikes me, all right. So if you have like a weather inversion, right? So from what wide of an area is that observable from? You know what I mean? Like how, how many people are going to be observing the same thing from multiple different areas from different observation points. Yeah. You know know what I mean? Right. So Um, if you have a sighting in Washington, DC, you're not going to have the exact same sighting in Florida the next day, which happened in this case. You know, it's just too far away. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Your, your perspective is, is vastly different. You know, it's, which is to me, one of the things that adds to the credibility of this case, you know, because there are multiple people, very many different people that observed very similar things from vastly different perspectives 
not not just from from different you know viewpoints, but from different straight up perspectives. You know, you had people that were that were in the uh, the towers. You had people that were on the deck. You know, uh, on the the uh, you know loading stuff onto planes or what have you. That the work all the different crews and stuff that that, that you know had testimonies. You had people who were. Um, Passengers on, passengers on planes. You had pilots. You had you know um, every damn different type of person who could be experiencing this and absorbing this from you know uh, whatever part of an airport or you know a military base for you know for example. Um, damn near everybody had an experience to recount. You know it, it's this is this this is one of those amazing uh, accounts. Like it's one of those amazing events, I think. And like, like I had said earlier, I really wish that, that this one was talked about more, you know? Yeah. And I wish we'd spend more time on cases like this and fewer or fewer less time on cases like the Rendlesham binary, which is just so obviously bullshit that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Like, oh, they downloaded using ASCII code uh, binary into my brain or whatever. Yeah, because that's what aliens do. Aliens would make, they would even know what we use for, it's stupid. It doesn't make any sense at all. Hey, speaking of ASCII code, um, I just recently finished a novel, The Martian. I know that I'm way behind, but but damn, that was a good book. They, but the only reason why I say that is because they, they use the ASCII code oh, okay. in that book. But <laughs> yeah, it just, it, it reminded me of that. And I just finished that one. But yeah, it was probably, I, I I don't know if I've ever read a book faster than that one. I'm sure there's plenty of better fiction books out there. You know what I mean? That, you know, Game of Thrones or whatever your, your hankering is for fiction. But for whatever reason, I, I finished that damn book lickety split. I don't know if I've ever finished a book faster. Maybe, maybe it was just more of a thing of convenience than anything else. But um yeah, uh, for yeah, I really enjoyed that one. You know a book uh, for whatever. You know a book you might like ETA is uh, it's a book called Thank You for Smoking. I don't know if you're. They made a movie out of it, but the book was way better. It's a like a comedy book about this guy who's a, a I lobbyist. I think I saw that movie. Yeah, yeah, he was a cigarette. Uh, yeah, cigarette industry lobbyist of some. Yeah. yeah, I think I saw the movie. Um, the the guy that played the main lobbyist. Um, what is that guy's name? Uh, I know that I've seen him in other movies before. Um, I forget. Yeah. I forget his name. Um, but anyways, the, the movie was good, but the book was way better. I think you would like it. It's, <laughs> it's funny. As is tradition, <laughs> yeah. right? Well, not, well, not I, always. I, I, you know, I, not always. Well, yeah, yeah, you're right. But here's the thing, man. For for an active and imagination, there is no replacement. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean – when you're reading a book and you truly enjoy that book that you're reading, I mean, a movie, it it can be great and it can be very entertaining, but the world that your, your own imagination, imagination can whip up is, uh, there's nothing, nothing that can compare with that. You know, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Well, hey, you know, like the like the Moonanites say, you know, let's uh, no, you know, maybe I better not say that quote. Never mind. <laughs> that might well, that might be a bit much for this show. Never mind. <laughs> I immediately thought of five quotes, but I, I wasn't sure which one. Uh, I, I was thinking of the one, uh, you know, about sodomizing their vast imaginations. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Okay. I accept you. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's such a good show. <laughs> Any, anyways, <laughs> I think that's pretty much all I have to say about this case. Well, that's actually not all. There's so I mean, much about, I kind of want to do, uh, maybe some point in the future, a few more episodes about some of the stuff surrounding this case. There's just so much, but I guess for mm-hmm. now we have to wrap it up and that's, that's all I have to say for now about this case. Um, our forced. How about you ETA? Anything else to, before we wrap it up? Nah, I mean, I mean, yeah, there, there's a lot more finite detail we could go over and, and we probably will like in a power hour or, or something later, you know, where uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll recall this uh, event and go off on some, some stupid wild tangent that doesn't have anything to do with what we were originally talking about, which is tradition. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I enjoy it. Well, I hope other people's enjoy it. Just, I mean, <laughs> just like just the transcripts from the air traffic controllers, I think would be interesting to read, you know, like, just, Oh yeah. Yeah. Just, there's just so much that to look into in no, this case, those, those transcripts, you could easily fill an hour. Yeah. Probably. Oh with, yeah. With just going over how they, like what they said to each other during, during this whole period of time, during the two different weekends. It's amazing. I mean, I mean, yeah. And, and there's all sorts of, yeah, you, you, yeah. I'll just, I'll stop right there. Yeah. I mean, it's, we're going to have to revisit this. I think. I think so. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. If you enjoyed the show, you could really help us out by giving us a like, subscribing, and suggesting the show to your friends.